Welcome to episode 39 of the March of History podcast, and welcome to the very first episode I'm recording in my new city of Valencia, Spain, on the Mediterranean coast of Spain, south of Barcelona. It's actually the third largest city in Spain, although for some reason a lot of people I know don't seem to know much about Valencia, but it's an absolutely beautiful history, or beautiful city that is, packed with history, and I am in a subletted apartment right now recording this episode, and then in a week from now, I'll move into my permanent apartment in the historic center of Valencia. So that will be really cool to be in, and, and be sure to put lots of historical content from the area on the March of History's Instagram and Facebook pages. And then after recording this episode, I will start to look for a job, hopefully giving history tours here in Valencia for the summer before the school year starts again. So that's just to give you a little bit of background on my life and what's been happening here. Let's get back to the history and Julius Caesar, or, or kind of Julius Caesar. All right, so we left off with Rome going absolute bananas over Caesar's victory over the Belgae and his victory in Gaul. The Senate even voted Caesar 15 days of Thanksgiving. This was more days of Thanksgiving than they had voted to any Roman general in all the history of Rome, including Pompey, who at this point was considered Rome's greatest military general. And these 15 days of Thanksgiving, in addition to creating a wild scene of half a month of parties in Rome and feasting, they also served to legitimize Caesar's campaign, which, let's be honest, may or may not have been legal. It's on some shaky, some gray ground there. And all this happens, the Thanksgiving, the end of the conquest, at around the end of 57 BCE, or, or possibly the Thanksgiving into 56, the early parts of 56 BCE. And historian and author Tom Holland frames this whole scene in a very fascinating way. So I'm going to kind of relate that to you. He says that one of the chief supporters of this Thanksgiving bill, because he actually had to pass a bill in the Senate. The Senate is the one that awarded Caesar this, these 15 days of Thanksgiving. And one of the chief supporters of this bill was none other than an old political rival, or at least at times a political rival of Caesar's. And that political rival at some point during this period, probably after the voting of the Thanksgiving, would go on to say about Caesar and about his conquest in a meeting of the Senate. So There's a speech that he gave to the Senate, quote, Therefore, he, meaning Caesar, has, with stunning good fortune, smashed in battle the greatest and fiercest tribes of Germans and Helvetii, and terrified the other peoples, checked them, and brought them under our domination and power of the Roman people. Our general, our soldiers, and the arms of the Roman people have now made their way through regions and nations which till now have not even been known by story or written account." End quote. Now, the translation of the quote I just read for you is actually from Adrian Goldsworthy's book, Caesar, Life of a Colossus. But more importantly, the person who said the quote was none other than Marcus Tullius Cicero. Yes, the same Cicero who, when we last heard from him, was in exile. But he is now happily back in Rome and cheering on Caesar during his conquests. So yes, I have a lot to catch you up on what's been happening in Rome while Caesar's been gone. Caesar's actually been away from Rome for about two years now, or at least the whole of two years, if not more. And a lot has been happening in his absence. And most does not involve Caesar, at least not directly, but it will still affect him. And 
it's always true of any Roman governor that what happens, you know, the politics in Rome will affect them, even if they're on the fringes of the empire. So they always need to keep an eye on on the politics in Rome. And Caesar, for his part, is constantly and relentlessly monitoring the situation in Rome and doing his best to influence that situation whenever he can. In fact, there's a constant stream, I mean absolutely constant stream of letters going between Caesar and the leading citizens of Rome, whether they're in Rome or around the empire, Caesar's writing to them all and attempting to influence them all at all times. And Caesar has surrogates working for him, men that look after his interests in Rome while he's gone. And some of these surrogates are other, say, more junior senators that owe him money or owe him favors that look after his interests. And some are actual agents who are not senators and really do work directly for Caesar. And these agents, their kind of their role is to approach senators and approach equestrians of high rank with proposals, to approach them with bribes, to propose uh, ways that they can work together, to explain Caesar's interests, to make deals with these people, and to tell existing proxies of Caesar's what his interests are and how he wants them to vote on certain bills and what he would like them to do for him. So, to tell this story best and to fill you in on what's been happening in Rome while Caesar's been gone, we need to take a break from Caesar for at least a few episodes and focus on some of the main characters in the story of the fall of the Republic and in the story of Caesar's life and what they've been doing while Caesar's been gone because they have not been sitting there quietly on their hands, I promise you that much. So, Let's go back in time to a time shortly even before Cicero's exile and before Caesar had raced north to fight the Helvetii and and take up his province in Gaul. This episode today, as I said, will not be about Caesar, but it will be about the other main actors in the Republic. It will be about Cicero, it will be about Cato, and to a lesser degree, it will be about Pompey and a tiny bit about Clodius. And then next episode, we're going to get into Clodius in much more depth. And that, I promise you, is very interesting. But don't worry, we have plenty of interesting topics to talk about today. So without further ado, let's get started. In fact, let's start out with everyone's favorite disagreeable man, Cato. So one thing I haven't mentioned so far is that even before Cicero's exile, which happened in 58 BC, really the year after Caesar's consulship, One thing I haven't mentioned is that Cato had his own kind of crisis during this time. Maybe not a crisis, but kind of similar to Cicero's and parallel to Cicero's story. So Clodius had every intention of getting Cicero exiled back in 58 BC. But Clodius felt that Cato would interfere on Cicero's behalf and would generally be obstructive, I'm sure the triumvirate agreed, not that they wanted to get rid of Cicero so bad, I mean they did kind of, but more so just Cato was interfering everything that they were trying to get done at the time, so I'm sure they agreed with Clodius that it would be good to get rid of Cato if possible. So, either with the first triumvirate's permission or without their permission, because I don't think they had that much control over Clodius, Clodius set his crazy sights on Cato, and to be honest... Clodius's plan to deal with Cato is absolutely brilliant, and I don't know why Caesar or anyone else in the Republic that was going against Cato never attempted to do or to replicate what Clodius does here, either before he did it or even afterwards. Nobody ever copies Clodius in this, despite the fact that his strategy was extremely effective, the most effective way of dealing with Cato I've seen. 
So remember, Clodius had been turned into a plebeian from a patrician by Caesar and by Pompey so that he could then run for the tribuneship and get revenge on Cicero. This was done by Pompey and Caesar to directly strike at Cicero for giving you know, all sorts of bad speeches against, or, or at least one bad speech against the, the triumvirate. And so now Clodius is a tribune still, and even before going in for Cicero, he needed to get rid of Cato. And the way he does this is that he proposes that Cato be sent to Cyprus, the island in the Mediterranean Sea, to oversee its incorporation into the empire. And Clodius made the case to the Senate and to the people of Rome that Cyprus was just too infamously rich and too tempting of an opportunity for corruption for any normal senator, and that only an incorruptible person like Cato could be sent to oversee its incorporation into the empire. Any mere mortal sent would fall prey to corruption, would start stealing money, embezzling funds, sending funds to their friends, etc., etc., and that only somebody like Cato could oversee its incorporation into the empire. And Cyprus was extremely wealthy. And the reason, the, the justification for annexing it and why it can suddenly be done now, like what led up to this, is that one, Clodius needed money to pay for the new grain dole that I believe he had created as a tribune to please the people and to get them on his side. And Cyprus was extremely wealthy and the funds would provide for that grain dole. But also, even more important to Clodius is that it's a bit of long overdue revenge. Remember, Clodius is somebody that is almost uniquely and solely motivated by personal vendettas that he will nurse with him for years and even for decades if he has to before getting his final revenge. And if you remember back to one of our earlier episodes, Clodius got kidnapped by pirates when he was in the Mediterranean, and unlike Caesar, rather than it contributing to his legend and him handling himself well, he demanded that the king of Cyprus, or Cyprus is really controlled by Egypt, but we'll get into that later, but he demanded that the king send the money for his ransom to the pirates. And the king must have known who he was because Clodius was related to some of the top people in Rome, and these top people were kind of running a campaign against Mithridates in the east at the time. And so he would have known who Clodius was based on who he's related to, but Clodius himself wasn't important at the time. He was just a young nobody. So the king sent an insulting two talents to the pirates, and the pirates thought that this was hilarious. And Clodius is not somebody who likes being laughed at and is not somebody who likes being snubbed. So he never forgot this insult by this king. And so now, as tribune, Clodius accuses the king of Cyprus of colluding with pirates and therefore, that's one justification of why Rome's going to annex the kingdom, because it's behaving like a rogue state, it's colluding with pirates to kidnap Roman senators, this can't be allowed, and so here's a pretext to, to justify the annexation of Cyprus. But that's not the only reason. Also, Cyprus and Egypt itself were, <laughs> were left to Rome in, in the will of one of the kings uh, of Egypt. And that sounds crazy, right? Well, this actually happened in Rome, and this wasn't the first time. It happened a few times in Rome's history. And the idea by the king would be if they didn't see any clear, strong successor that could resist the will of Roman expansion, then to save their people 
from military conquest at the hands of the Romans. And let's be honest, in the open field, no one's going to defeat Rome. It's just going to be a bloody affair. And Rome's going to come in there, and they're not going to be so nice if they have to come in there by force. So it's best, rather than waiting for some ambitious Roman general to come in there and try to fleece the people of all the funds and start a bloody campaign like like Caesar's doing in Gaul, the king would just leave his kingdom to Rome in a will. And Rome would still come in and, and probably enact some unfair taxation and unfair laws, but at least the people wouldn't be butchered then, right? It would save his people from violence. So this was not unheard of, but the problem was that Egypt was just seen as being so rich and so wealthy and such a tempting target that no Roman senator could countenance the idea of another Roman senator being sent to Egypt to annex it because that person would enrich themselves to such an alarming degree and would gain so many powerful clients that upon their return to Rome, it would entirely unbalance the the Roman political scales, right? This person would be so powerful that they would overshadow all rivals and essentially set themselves up as some kind of quasi-king of Rome. This was the fear anyway. So even though Egypt and Cyprus had been left to Rome in a will, Rome had just sat there and not done anything about it. And various people like Crassus and Caesar had tried over the years to to put forward to uh, the Roman Senate and to the people a proposal that somebody be sent to go annex Egypt but every single time, especially the optimists, but many senators said no to this because they just couldn't agree on who would be sent and they would get so much power and there was just too much opportunity for corruption. But here, Clodius kind of got around that by one saying, hey, Cato's not going to be sent to annex Egypt itself, which is probably seen as being even richer than Cyprus. He'll be sent to, to annex Cyprus and he is the most anti-corruption person in Rome and the most trusted person in Rome. So all the senators can get behind this. But let's get back to Cato in this story. Clodius says that Cato is the only man who can be trusted. And of course, this is designed to prey on Cato's pride. And more importantly, it's designed to prey on Cato's desire for an uncorrupted republic that handles administration of the provinces well, right? Cato wants these things, and here's his opportunity to show the republic how it should be done. But Cato's not stupid, right? Cato, for all of his flaws, is a very smart political actor, and according to Plutarch, Cato says to Claudius that this is not a gift. This is a design against Cato. This is a plan against him. And he says that it's no favor, but an injury. <laughs> so Cato sees right through this ploy. You know, he's not being tricked by this. And Clodius, when Cato says this to him, gets very angry at this. Remember, Clodius is a very volatile person. And Plutarch says about this, quote, then Clodius proudly and fiercely answered, and this is a quote within a quote by Clodius. So Clodius says, quote, If you will not take it as a kindness, you shall go, though never so unwillingly. End quote. And Plutarch continues, And immediately going into the assembly of the people, he made them pass a decree that Cato should be sent to Cyprus. But they ordered him neither ship nor soldier, nor any attendant except two secretaries, one of whom was a thief and a rascal, and the other a retainer to Clodius. Besides, as if Cyprus and Ptolemy were not sufficient, he ordered also to restore the refugees of Byzantium, for Clodius was resolved to keep him far enough off whilst himself continued tribune. End quote. So to put that in more layman's terms for you, basically... 
Cato was having none of it. And Clodius said, I don't care whether you want to go or not. You're going to go regardless. And he went to an assembly of the people and got this law passed and sent Cato on this expedition. And then kind of to give Cato the middle finger on the way, voted him no ships to get him there, voted him extremely minimal staff to help him with all this work. Basically, one guy who was a, a known thief and, ra- and rascal to help him out, and then one guy who was a retainer to Clodius and couldn't be trusted. And so that, you know, if Cato's going to sail there, and if he's going to bring a staff with him, and if he's going to bring friends with him, that would all be at Cato's own expense, right? And the state's not going to help with any of those things. So in typical Clodius fashion, he really knows how to rub people's noses and things and to get his personal revenge. And surprisingly, Cato, despite the fact that he's against this, eventually relents and agrees to go. And this is very surprising to me that Cato would give in like this because by doing so, he's admitting through his actions that a tribune can dictate foreign policy to the Senate, which would be something that most optimates would be very much against. They would say that it's, it's not the tribune's place to dictate foreign policy, that really that's the Senate's historical and rightful duty. But anyway, that's kind of getting into the weeds, so let's leave that there. So Cato leaves for his special command in 58 BCE, and that is, just to give you some context, the year after Caesar's consulship, and also the same year that Clodius was tribune, and 58 BCE is the same year that Caesar fights the Helvetii, so a lot happening that year. And let's just remember, Cato absolutely hates special commands. He hates when Pompey's given special commands. He hates if Caesar's giving a special command. He hates anyone getting special commands. He thinks that they're bad for the Republic. And now here, Cato is having a special command rammed down his throat, whether he likes it or not. (laughs) And Cato will not return to Rome from this special command until 56 BCE. And that is the year after Caesar defeats the Belgae, just to give you some context on that. So if you've been wondering why Cato's been so quiet in Rome about this possibly illegal war that Caesar's been waging, this is why, because Cato's not in Rome. He's, he's buried in work up to his eyeballs with very few people to help him in Cyprus and, and settling the, the refugees of Byzantium. But this works from Clodius' perspective brilliantly because Cato is out of Clodius's hair for the next almost two years and he's out of the triumvirate's hair for the next almost two years. So it's clearly an amazing and brilliant strategy. It's outside the box and it works. So I don't know why Caesar or anybody of the triumvirate never try this on Cato again in the future. You know, every time you have a big bill coming up, every time he's getting in your way, just propose a special command for him that only he is suited for. But for whatever reason, nobody ever repeats this. And I don't know if it's because in the subsequent years after this, Clodius will so damage his reputation in Rome that to do so would be seen to be following in his footsteps and you know would taint your own reputation just by being compared to him. I'm not sure. That's pure speculation on, on my front. But I'm just wondering why nobody repeated this clearly effective strategy of just getting Cato out of people's hair. Now, just to catch you up on what Cato gets up to in Cyprus, just very briefly, because I don't want to go into all the details and get bogged down in Cato's life too much, because this is a podcast about the biography of Julius Caesar. But I, I do want to kind of give you a flavor for what Cato gets up to in Cyprus, and it helps kind of it helps you see his personality better too. So Cato's on his way to Cyprus 
But really, he stays in an area not so far away from Cyprus, and he gives an option to the Ptolemaic ruler. And, and the Ptolemies were the dynasty that ruled Cyprus and Egypt. And just to give you a little bit of background on this, Cyprus was kind of at this point in the Roman Republic where rival claimants to the Egyptian throne would flee to. Oftentimes, they'd be relatives or brothers of the king in Egypt, and they would flee to Cyprus, and they would wait there until maybe some rebellion happens against the king of Egypt, and he has to flee, and then the guy in Cyprus would run to Egypt and try to make himself king, and things like this, right? So Cyprus is technically part of Egypt, but there's usually some kind of rival claimant who's off, who's usually related to the the king in Egypt as well. So they're, they're kind of tied together, Egypt and Cyprus, and kind of uh, separated from each other. But this is kind of by Roman design, too. This divides the kingdom and makes them less powerful. Anyway, so Cato says to the current ruler of Cyprus, who's not surprisingly named Ptolemy, because they're all named Ptolemy, he says uh, basically that he can have a position as some kind of head priest with some kind of income, and Ptolemy doesn't like this and kills himself instead. <laughs> what this means is that Cato is left with the entire treasury of Cyprus, which is sizable, the royal treasury, right? And this is what the Romans meant by this was just too much temptation for anybody because you could bring back a huge amount of treasure to Rome and still have a huge amount of treasure left over for you to you know, steal off and siphon to, your, to yourself. But Cato, to his credit, was so honest and so distrustful of everyone around him when it came to the sale of the royal goods he even turned one of his best friends, at least for a time, into one of his enemies. Or at least, you know, they went from best friends to not talking to each other for a long period of time because of what happened in Cyprus. So Cato, as always, is not there to make friends. And Cato, through these means, through constantly watching everybody and distrusting everybody and believing that they're all out to be corrupt. And he's probably right, because at this point in the Republic, corruption is the way things work. And Cato is kind of unique in the fact that he doesn't engage in it. But Cato gathers up a massive sum of 7,000 talents of silver to be brought back to the Roman treasury. And Cato wanted this annexation of Cyprus to be a model for future governors of Rome, that when they went into a province, this would be a model, for, basically by looking at the account books and by studying what Cato did in Cyprus, they would be able to say, hey, this is the gold standard of how to annex a new territory into Rome without destroying the local people, without being wildly unfair to them, without making them resent you, without siphoning off money for yourself and all your cronies. This is how it should be done. So Cato kept meticulous records of everything that he did financially, and he even made duplicates of the record books that he kept. And this would not have been easy in a time before printing press, in a time before photocopying machines, right? That requires somebody to duplicate all of the records that are written throughout a two-year process or a year-and-a-half process where Cato's there, where they're selling off royal goods every single day, and, and everything has to be duplicated at least once. That's a lot of work, right? But Cato makes sure to go through this because he is absolutely paranoid about, one, the money reaching Rome. He wants to reach there safely, and two, he wants to make sure that the records reach Rome as not just to protect himself and to show that he did good, but also to serve, like I said, as a model for future governors. And so as far as the money goes, 
Cato, what he did is he had a rather unique strategy of getting it back to Rome. So first, he had to divide it up into many small chests rather than a few big chests. And these chests would have no more than two talents and 500 drachmas apiece. And you divide them up between a few different ships. That way, if one ship goes down, you don't lose all of your gold or all of your silver, right? But the more unique thing that he did was he tied a rope to every chest. And at the end of the rope, he tied a piece of cork onto the rope. And the idea being that if a ship goes down because of a storm or whatever the reason is, the the chest will sink to the bottom of the sea, but the rope with the piece of cork at the end of it will float to the top. And then somebody can come sailing along where they knew that the ship had sank and they would find a bunch of ropes with corks hanging at the surface and they would grab onto the ropes and they would haul up the chest and, and save it for the Roman treasury. Great idea in the ancient world, I'm sure, but I, I think Cato may have underestimated how deep the Mediterranean Sea was. I don't know how long his ropes were, but I don't imagine that those ropes were so long that they would have been at the bottom of the Mediterranean and still would have been floating to the top. But regardless, the strategy of dividing the treasure up between multiple ships works, and the vast majority of the treasure does make it to Rome safely, and it's a major success for Cato. Now, as far as the, the duplicate of the account books, he had two different account books that showed his entire record of what he did in Cyprus, and those did not fare so luckily. So he sent one via a freedman of his, whose ship sunk along the way, and the freedman died, and presumably the account books went down with him. So boom, one, the duplicate of account books are gone now. Now it's down only to Cato's original book. And Cato keeps that with him at all times. And on his way back from Cyprus, after his extraordinary governorship there, Cato stops on the way because it's difficult to make the sale on one journey. He stops on the way at a place called Corsaira. And this was an island off the northwestern coast of Greece. And on this island, Cato pitches a tent in the local marketplace. And unfortunately for Cato, it was a very cold night that night. And so the sailors that Cato was with made fires to keep themselves warm. And these fires somehow or another caught the tents around them on fire. And the tents fire spread to the other tents. And pretty soon all the tents are on fire. And in this fire and the resulting chaos... Cato's book is burned. <laughs> so Cato went through all that work of making a duplicate set of copy of his books to show how rightly a, a province should be administered and annexed into the government. And yet both books were either where one was ruined by water, one was ruined by fire, but neither would make it back to Rome. And this is a problem for Cato because now he is open to prosecution for the charge of embezzlement. He's coming back with an enormous amount of silver from a very rich land of Cyprus, and he has no records to show that he did this honestly and fairly. And let's be honest, if anyone else had been sent to annex Cyprus and they had come back without any written records and some excuses as to, oh, yeah, one fell in the water and, and one got burned and, yeah, I don't have any records, but here's some silver, Cato would prosecute them in a heartbeat, Right. But Cato's, I guess, is kind of the exception to this because he was able to rely on his reputation in Rome, the reputation that he was incorruptible, the incorruptible man, and and the idea that most people in Rome know that he would never steal from provincials or, or steal specifically from the government of Rome. 
that this would be something that would be so abhorrent to Cato that he would never do that. So he's able to rely on his reputation. And what's more is Cato has with him a number of Ptolemy's stewards. These would have been the people that worked for the Ptolemy royal government, and they could they had come with Cato and, and could attest to his honesty and, and that he had treated them well as provincials. So that's who he can rely on for his defense, his own reputation he's built over the years, and these stewards, and it, it does Cato good, right? He doesn't get prosecuted. But you gotta, I just always think that if it had been somebody else, Cato would have been the first one in line to prosecute them. And Cato's eventual return to Rome is compared by Plutarch to a triumph. Remember, a triumph is when a Roman general, after succeeding in battle and being declared imperator in the field by his troops, rides on a chariot, face painted like a god, and crowds are thronging and adoring him as as they march through the city and, and ride on a chariot. Plutarch compares Cato's return to one of these triumphs because Cato rose up the Tiber River on a royal galley from Cyprus with six banks of oars, and people in Rome gather in huge crowds on either side of the Tiber River to cheer and to watch this spectacle of Cato returning from his special command. And the Senate, when they meet with Cato, try to give him all sorts of honors for what he's done for the Republic. And they're amazed at the amount of silver and treasure that's being brought off the ships. And of course, Cato, for his part, turns all these honors down. Says he doesn't want any of them. The only thing that he requests is that one of Ptolemy's stewards, who Cato found to be extremely industrious and honest, be granted his freedom by the Senate. And the Senate duly does this. I mean, this is a cool look for Cato, right? You know, he turns down all the honors, which is a typical Cato thing. And he just requests freedom for one of these, these, I guess, basically, they're called stewards, but I guess they're kind of slaves of Ptolemy. And since Rome's taken over the government, they're probably slaves of Rome now. And so Cato gets this guy his freedom. Now, let's leave Cato there for now, and let's hop back in time again. Because remember, I told you we're going to hop back in time a, a little bit to tell each character's story. And we'll go to Cicero. So Cicero, remember I told you he went into exile. We had a whole episode on that. He went into exile in 58 BCE, shortly after Cato was sent on his errand to Cyprus. This is around the exact same time that Caesar was racing north to fight the Helvetii. And Cicero, just to remind you, left in the middle of the night with just a few friends to avoid trouble with Clodius. And after he left, Clodius burned or destroyed his house in Rome, and then somehow managed to track down all of Cicero's villas. And he had a lot of them because he collected them and at various points in his life was in big debt because of his collection of houses and villas throughout the countryside. But Clodius tracked all these ones down throughout Italy and had them all destroyed as well. So extremely discouraging situation for Cicero being thrown out of his home city, being embarrassed this way, having his houses burned down. And then after Cicero leaves, Clodius also builds a temple to liberty on the site of Cicero's old house. And by the way, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but Cicero and Clodius were neighbors in Rome, too. So this is how they <laughs> ended up rubbing you know, elbows with each other and, and coming to dislike each other. And part of Cicero's property, Clodius took for his own self and, and expanded his house onto that property. And the other part, he built the temple to liberty basically symbolically saying to Romans, I have liberated Rome from this awful person of Cicero who puts Romans to death without a trial, which is what 
the pretext that Clodius has was for getting rid of Cicero and exiling him was that he put citizens to death without a trial during the Catiline conspiracy. Remember, that was what Caesar had been against and Cato had been for that, that death sentence. And after this, once Cicero leaves, Clodius makes sure to make it official and he passes a law that forbids anyone from providing Cicero with fire or with water and forbids Cicero from living within 400 miles of Rome. That's a long way in a time before cars, in a time where you had to rely on horses or boats, you know, ships that can sink very easily. You know, that's a long way. And, and Cicero is a homebody, like most of the optimates. You know, he's not a hardcore optimate, but he is probably center right, so you could call him an optimate. But he's a homebody. He doesn't like to leave Rome. He loves Rome, and this is awful to Cicero. But it, it, it does seem that Cicero was well-loved by the people of Italy. Remember, he was from Arpinum. He was from a town just outside of Rome. So the snobs of Rome never really considered him a true Roman. And I'm sure the Italians embraced him as one of their own. And it seems that most people in the empire along the way, whether it was in Italy or Greece or anywhere else, were happy to help Cicero, with a few exceptions. Most of them put, them put him up on his journey into exile, the exception being the governor of Sicily, who asked Cicero to avoid the island altogether. And Sicily had been a place where Cicero had been governor of in the past, and so this must have been, you know, kind of salt in the wound for Cicero. But Cicero did as he asked and avoided the island of Sicily, and so he went by way of Macedonia to Greece. And in Greece, he stayed for his exile, and he settled in a town or a city called Thessalonica, which apparently today is a very similar name. It's called Thessaloniki and still exists today. I love that about Greece. Greece still has very similar city names to the ancient city names. But there in Thessalonica, Cicero was taken into the official residence of the Roman quaestor there, a man named Gnaeus Plancius. And this was, in my opinion, a very brave and generous thing for Plancius to do. And I think Anthony Everett makes this case as well. Uh, he writes in his book, Cicero, I think it's called Cicero, The Life and Times of Rome's Greatest Politician. But this was a very brave thing for Gnaeus Plancius to do because one, he's going against the express exile that Rome has just passed. And two, he's getting on the wrong side of Clodius, a man known for carrying vendettas for years. But I guess he liked Cicero and thought Cicero was wronged. And so he allows Cicero to stay in his official residence as Roman quaestor there. And that's where Cicero stays for at least a good portion of his exile. Now, Cicero was a person that was carried away by highs and lows throughout his life. When things were going well, he was on top of the world, and nobody was greater than him. And when things went bad, everything was terrible, and Rome was terrible, and uh, you know nothing will ever go right again. So he's a guy that flies between highs and lows in his life, and you know this is an extreme blow, so this is no exception. And Anthony Everett makes the point in his book that, judging by Cicero's letters... Cicero seemed to suffer some sort of mental breakdown from his exile and from the houses being burned uh, at this point in our story. And Cicero even says in a letter to his best friend Atticus, who also lived in Greece, that at this time he was losing weight and crying a lot. Those are Cicero's actual words. I mean, in Latin or something similar to that, but that he was losing weight and crying a lot. So a very sad thing for Cicero. And what's more is his family is still in Rome, and this is partially Cicero's doing. 
He wanted his wife to stay in Rome because he felt that she would better be able to advocate for his return in Rome than coming with him into exile. But it also meant that he was separated from his family. And so at this point, Cicero is very worried about his wife, Terentia, uh, about the frailty of her health. I guess she had some health issues about his son, Marcus, who's seven years old, about his daughter, Tolia, who's actually married at this point and has moved out to a man named Calpurnius Piso. But still, he's worried about his family. He's not there to take care of them. And you got to think it's it's prob. I don't know whether they were home or not when Clodius came to burn down their house or tear it down, but they probably were, I, I imagine. And that has to be something that would terrorize even an adult, never mind a seven-year-old, little Marcus, Cicero's son. So he's very worried about his family. Uh, Now, Cicero's daughter, Tolia, who was really just the apple of Cicero's eye and his favorite child, he loved Tolia. Her husband was kind of the model son-in-law. His name was, like I said, Calpurnius Piso. And he was actually a quaestor in 58 BC, but rather than going into the provinces... And working as a proquaestor, as was normally the case, he gave up his foreign posting at this time to work for Cicero's recall to Rome. So really a model son-in-law, but he doesn't live too long and dies shortly after this. So, you know, for all of his troubles, he ends up dying young anyway. But getting back to Cicero, he's lost all of his houses, and you can imagine, I mean, nobody ever focuses in the ancient world on people's personal finances, with some exceptions, like Caesar going to huge debt. But I imagine that if Cicero was in debt for a lot of these villas beforehand, if they're all burned down now, I don't imagine those creditors are going away. And in the ancient world, there wasn't really a banking system, so a lot of those creditors would have been people that expected political favors in return and would have been friends and family that lent him the money as well. So this is a traumatic situation for Cicero financially. He's separated from his family. He's crying a lot. He's losing weight. And so he does seem to indicate in some of his letters to Atticus that, and that's his best friend, that he either attempted suicide or at least considered suicide at this time in his life, which is, you know, the ultimate low for Cicero. But like I said, Cicero bounces between lows and highs, and soon he's on a high again, and his spirits begin to rise, and he begins to rally, and he begins an active campaign to get himself recalled from exile. And that is where we're going to leave Cicero for now, because yes, he starts this active campaign to get himself recalled, and his friend Atticus works tirelessly to get him recalled. And so does his wife in Rome and his son-in-law in Rome and all of his friends in Rome. But at the end of the day, at least in my opinion, it has little to do with any of their efforts as to why Cicero gets recalled from exile. It has far more to do with realpolitik reasons in Rome and with what happens to Pompey and Clodius next. So we're going to leave Cicero's story there for now. And in the next episode, I'll cover his return from exile because in order to understand that, you need to understand what's happening to Pompey and what's happening in Rome. So let's move on to Pompey now. Pompey has spent the past two years that Caesar has been in Gaul falling deeply, head over heels, in love with Caesar's daughter, Julia. And Julia, for her part, is in love with Pompey too. Remember, this was an arranged marriage during the time of Caesar's consulship to cement the triumvirate that he had created with Crassus and with Pompey. 
It was a marriage that was done for the coldest of calculating political purposes to stop Pompey from weaseling out of this alliance, which Pompey did so often in alliances and in politics. And there was a 23-year age gap between Julia and Pompey. But despite all of that, this was an extremely happy marriage. This was a perfect match between these two. Julia was charming, like only Julius Caesar's daughter could be. And Pompey, for his part, though he was older, he was Rome's greatest general. And he was the golden boy of Rome for the past 20 years or so. And was still, in many ways, despite his age, seen as the golden boy in Rome. And just to be in Pompey's glow and to have the reflective adoration cast upon Julia, you know, she loved that as well. And for her part, she adored Pompey and, and gave him all the hero worship that he always desired. You know, Pompey was a guy that always wanted to be worshipped and adored by those around him. And Julia seems to have given him that. And it was a perfect match. And it doesn't hurt that Pompey was extremely rich as well. And the two got on famously. But love marriages were not normal things among the Roman aristocracy. And Rome, at seeing Julia and Pompey falling deeply in love with each other, had an absolute field day. Pompey loves his wife. Get a load of that. That is a world-class scandal in Rome. And the Romans had a field day making fun of their hardened general becoming kind of just obsessed with his wife. And, and Plutarch says about this, quote, For he, meaning Pompey, not long after, let his fondness for his young wife seduce him also into effeminate habits. He gave all of his time to her and passed his days in her company in country houses and gardens, paying no heed to what was going on in the forum, end quote. So Pompey has begun spending all of his time with Julia. He's neglecting state business. He's neglecting what's happening in the forum. And they spend all their time just going to country estates and seeing gardens around Italy and just falling in love with each other. Which by today's standards, if you had tons of money like Pompey does and you had tons of free time and you had this new young wife, that would be seen as a very positive thing, I would think. But in ancient Rome, this was seen as a neglect of duty. He was one of the great men of Rome. He was a member of the, the triumvirate, too. You know, he's supposed to be running Rome. And here he is neglecting all these duties to spend time with his young wife, who they say has seduced him and has turned him effeminate. And to the Romans, this looks weak, especially since Pompey made his name being a hard general on the frontiers of Rome. And in a way, this is right where Caesar wants Pompey, because I do think that Julia was genuinely in love with Pompey and was not just pretending for her father's sake. But even still, this is exactly where Caesar wants Pompey, because Pompey is not finding ways to wiggle out of the alliance. Pompey is not finding ways to conspire against Caesar or to you know, rip Caesar's command away from him and, and replace himself in it, as Pompey had done to people in the past. Pompey is too busy falling in love with Caesar's daughter to think about any of these things. This is perfect for Caesar. Now, let's hop back in our story to Clodius for a moment, because remember, Clodius is the one who proposed that Cyprus be annexed. So, yes, this was personal revenge for Clodius against the king of Cyprus. 
Yes, this was personal revenge against Cicero or getting Cato out of the way so he could get personal revenge against Cicero. And yes, this was a way to fund the grain dole that was now happening in Rome. But the annexation of Cyprus served another purpose. It was the opening salvo on Pompey, too. You see, Pompey, in his original settlement of the East that Caesar had gotten ratified, had set up Cyprus in in its current condition. And really, any change to the settlement that Pompey had made was seen as an insult by Pompey. And make no mistake, this isn't collateral damage. This isn't Clodius saying, hey, I want to strike at Cicero, and I want to strike at this king of Cyprus, and Pompey, no hard feelings, but I have to change your settlement to do that. No, this is intentional, because Clodius next turns on Pompey. And this is despite Pompey being in the triumvirate, who's ruling Rome at this point, at least behind the scenes, and despite the fact that Pompey is the augur that oversaw the ceremony to make Clodius a plebeian and and give him the tribuneship to begin with. To Clodius, Pompey looks weak. He looks like he's gone soft. He's sitting there going on, on tours of country villas with his young wife. This is not the hard general of old. This is not somebody to be feared. So Clodius begins to go after him. And let's remember, I've made this comparison before, but it's worth saying again, that Clodius, from the beginning, was always like a mad dog on a leash. And Caesar and Pompey, and especially Caesar, had control over this mad dog only in the fact that they had that metaphorical leash, and that metaphorical leash was keeping him a patrician. But the second they made him a plebeian and allowed him to run for the tribuneship, it was a lot like just cutting the leash or letting go of the leash. You have now lost all control of the mad dog. What little control you did have, you don't have any now. And once the leash is removed, that mad dog, Clodius, could bite anyone. And he now starts to bite Pompey, viciously. And Pompey is in no way prepared to be attacked like this. But that is where we will end our episode today on that cliffhanger. And in the next episode, just to give you a little sneak preview, Clodius ratchets up the street violence to levels Rome has never even dreamed of. And he really goes after Pompey in, like I said, a a way that Pompey's just not prepared to deal with. And Pompey eventually decides to fight fire with fire. He gets his own tribune, and this tribune recruits his own street gangs. And Rome is transformed into the Roman version of gangs of New York. It becomes the gangs of Rome in in ancient times. And street violence carries the day in, in the midst of this chaos. Cicero will make his return to Rome and join the fray. But all of that on next episode of the March of History. But before you go, don't forget to follow the March of History's Instagram at the March of History. Our Twitter is at March underscore History. Our Facebook is the March of History. And our email, if you want to send us any messages, is the March of History at gmail.com. Please, if you listen on an Apple device, leave us a review in the podcast store. Five stars would be very much appreciated. And make sure to share the podcast with other people that enjoy history, that want to learn about the past, that want to you know, learn from these great figures of the past and improve their own lives. And also make sure you subscribe to the podcast so that you get notifications when we come out with new episodes. That is it for today. We will see you next time on the March of History.